0: How can we describe this for viewers who might not have seen it?
1: I think for viewers who've seen the original Mean Girls movie, imagine if you fed that movie to an AI and asked it to, like, rewrite the movie with 2023 jokes in it for, like, Zoomer kids.
0: And also, like, aesthetic choices. And I'm not just talking about fashion, more like... There's a couple different places where it's obvious that people are making like TikToks about the events that have transpired.
1: Which I think is a really fascinating choice because one of the things about the original Mean Girls movie that's so striking if you watch it now is it came out in 2004. So it predated social media almost entirely. I think Facebook had been around for like two months when that movie came out. Yeah. And so in the movie, this like burn book is so crucial because... You know, that was like literally how people recorded rumors in this pre-social media age. <laughs> but now with TikTok, it's like, how are we meshing these digital and analog forms of bullying together in a way that's going to make sense to
0: kids today? Right. And so the other thing about the trailer, it's like all the different characters have been updated in some capacity, but Tina Fey is still there. Yep. And what? how would you describe what Tina Fey looks like?
1: Tina Fey looks like... She did in the first movie. She's, I think, wearing the same outfits. (laughs) And she has the same lines. Like, (laughs) they could have just stitched in scenes from the first movie for Tina Fey. She didn't update her wardrobe or her character or her dialogue. Or her glasses. No notes. Perfect.
0: I am Anne Helen Peterson, and this is the Culture Study Podcast.
1: And I'm Michelle Sisa, I'm a freelance journalist and a contributing writer to The Walrus. Is this a musical? It is a musical, <laughs> and I wanna ask, when did you learn that this was a musical? When did you figure that out? Because for me, it wasn't <laughs> until like a month after I'd seen the first trailer.
0: As will become evident when we answer the questions, I didn't know it was a musical until I started reading the questions that were submitted. And all of, like the first five were, why doesn't this trailer admit that it's a musical?
1: And there's a reason for that that I think is fascinating.
0: We'll get there. We'll get there. We should also establish how old we are because I think we're going to talk a lot about positionality when it comes to this movie. So I am, sure. God, 42, um, and I don't have kids. What about you, Michelle?
1: I am 36. I had to think about that. And I have two kids. And when the first Mean Girls movie came out, I was 17. And yet somehow in my head, that was only like 10 years ago. Oh,
0: yeah. It was 100% just 10 years ago. And I had just graduated from college. So it was kind of that first foray into like being back into pop culture because at least my college experience was like an extraction from pop culture into like this nebulous area where you weren't connected with anything. I think that's changed a lot, but that was used to be the case. Yeah. So... Let's talk a little bit about our relationship, even more so, to The Mean Girls from 2004. Do you like this movie? Is it a funny movie? Is it a canonical movie for you? What? How do you think about it?
1: So when I when the movie came out, I was in my last year of high school. So it felt like it was really, like, level with my demographic. Yeah. I think Lindsay Lohan and I are the same age. Fascinating. I was also, like, kind of a ginger-haired teenager with no social skills, so I really <laughs> related to her. Uh and and I remember it being really funny. Like, I remember all these lines from Mean Girls still feel like they have some kind of cachet or relevance today, right? Yeah. Like, if you say, you know, stop trying to make fetch happen, I think probably 90% of millennials <laughs> will understand that reference. Right. But even at the time, I remember there's many jokes about it that feel like they were dated or, like, kind of jarring then. Yeah. On a, on a contemporary view, watch are like shocking. Like, what? <laughs> like, there's a joke in the movie about how the gym teacher is having an affair with two like Vietnamese students oh, who are fighting over him. Do you remember that? Yes. He's like their boyfriend, and they find out that they're both dating him and they're like hitting each other and yelling in Vietnamese. And this is seen as like really funny.
0: wow and also just like having like fighting over having a relationship with a gym teacher like just wholly inappropriate
1: and there's a lot of kind of homophobic jokes that you know the idea like it's okay to call your friend gay if you're doing it in a loving way yeah and the whole like he's too gay to function joke (laughs) at the time wow It's really wild to think back on it and be like, yeah, this is this 2004. Is well, and the
0: whole know? way that they play Lindsay Lohan coming from Africa is really... The
1: joke that she's from Africa, but she's white. Yeah, like, that's and... the joke.
0: Like, that's the, <laughs> yes. the, the duration of the joke. It's just that she's white.
1: And that as a white teenager coming from Africa, she approaches the black students in the cafeteria and assumes that they speak Swahili. <laughs> like, there's... There's many layers to that,
0: I think. it's, And there's, like, all sorts of weight stuff going on, right? Yeah. I wonder
1: how that's going to play in 2024, the the whole big prank being making Regina George gain five pounds right. and hate herself.
0: <laughs> and totally. <laughs> so that
1: she doesn't fit into her prom dress, so that she's, like, too fat to wear her size four dress.
0: Okay. My relation is that I think since i was coming out of college like i think that i thought that it was like funny i i feel like i've always had this interesting relationship with tina fey where like i understood that she was supposed to somehow be like the avatar of white feminist humor but then there was something weird about her like she was just too she didn't seem to have um any sort of mode of like self interrogation or growth. And I think that this is something that we're gonna talk about is like, I don't think that her humor has grown in any capacity.
1: Yeah, or evolved. I think that's
0: a fair assessment. And so I think that something felt weird about that at the time. I also knew about that book that the original is quote unquote based on Queen Bees and Wannabes. Mm -hmm. because I social order is something that has always been really fascinating to me. And that in fact, I like, I felt like I was a student of social order when I was in middle school and in high school. And so that idea that something was like laying it out so clearly and the difficulties of it, like, that was interesting to me. But then I don't know that they they make the the movie so like, satirical when it comes to these different groups and how they function and like, how obviously bad the plastics are in all these different ways that I don't, I don't think that it actually resonated with me or that I found it that interesting, but I thought it was funny. And obviously Lindsay Lohan is a charisma machine too.
1: Yeah. It's really like peak Lindsay Lohan. Yes. She's so charming. She's so good. She's like so believable in that role. Cause I think she was a teenager when they filmed yeah. it. She was younger than her co-stars and You know, it makes it very like sad in retrospect when you watch it and you know how poorly she's gonna be treated by the media. Yeah. In you know, coming out of a generation of teen stars who were really like cannibalized by a media that loved to devour its young.
0: I feel like this is the last moment that she had before that happened. And so it is it's it's like watching early Britney Spears in that capacity too. Yeah. And then this is a a more difficult question. So I really wanted to have you on the show. And I was like, what could we talk about? That's interesting. And this was your suggestion. So why do you think that you (laughs) wanted to talk about this? When did you first see the trailer? Uh, I
1: think I saw the trailer probably like, two days before you sent me that DM. And I was like, this is what's been on my mind for the last 48 (laughs) hours. Because I think that I'm not alone in having this experience as, like, a millennial who's moving into midlife where I can no longer tell reliably how long ago something happened yeah. because my, like, personal sense of time is moving at a different rate than reality. So it was similarly, like, very jarring to me to learn that Lorde's album, Pure Heroine, came out a decade ago. No. I was like, no Stop way. Stop lying. Yeah, 2013. <laughs> And (laughs) and similarly, like, this week I've been trying to wrap my head around the fact that You've Got Mail is having its 25th anniversary, which means that movie and Mean Girls are only
0: five years apart. No, they're not. And
1: yet those films feel like they're from different generations to me. Absolutely. One is my generation. One feels older. Yep. And so I think it's just, you know, this movie to me feels like it's really capturing the millennial midlife crisis that occurs every time something like low-rise jeans or uggs become popular again and we're like hang on no what's happening and and it's fascinating because you know I asked some of my friends what they thought about this movie and by far the overwhelming reaction is like why are they remaking this who is this for Mm -hmm. like is this supposed to be for us because it feels insulting (laughs) We're going to get to that with the tag. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so I mean, it's, it's disorienting definitely to see, to realize that like you've lived so long that the things that were original in your youth are being repurposed uh, for a new generation that has like no cultural context for them. And, and it really makes you feel <laughs> in a very visceral way, like you're old.
0: Now. Yeah. And just that entire understanding of like, what does it mean to occupy oldness? I saw someone post the yeah. other day about like, how what we can do as millennials is like, especially people who've entered into their forties, is instead of feeling like an old young, you can feel like a young old, and that's a an, a more interesting place to be.
1: Interesting distinction. Yeah. So a young old is like you're you're young at heart, but you're old and yeah in body and memory Uh uh uh-huh
0: like all right if you're if you've like already seen mean girls cycle through and be regenerated then you are old at heart but if you can like i don't know if you are game to question some of what's going on in it and also immediately recognize the olivia rodrigo song you're also young so we are young old yeah
1: I mean, it's wild. It's uh, it's funny that like having children didn't make me feel as old as seeing a Mean Girls reboot, and we'd be like, "Wait a second, didn't that movie
0: just come out?" It's great. <laughs> didn't Lord's Pure Heroine just come out? Yes, exactly. Yes. But I think it also has to do, with just generally, with millennials. We are somehow still doing all of the things, like my student debt load is somehow still the amount that I thought it should have been at 30 so shouldn't I be young if I still have this much student debt or for like as a as a population like oh I'm still living in an apartment shouldn't I be young
1: yeah I was recently doing a rewatch of girls which also came out 10 years ago wow if you can believe it and when girls came out I was the same age as the characters in that show and I remember it was supposed to be this kind of like you know encapsulation of how a certain contingent of, like, privileged white young women were living in their 20s. And rewatching it now in my 30s, I was like, well, I still feel like a lot of this applies to the experience of my friends in our 30s. Like, you know, people are moving all the time. They're trying to figure out their careers. They're changing careers. They're, like, flailing their way through relationships. They're, you know, sorting through their relationships with their parents as adults. And you watch something like Sex and the City, which was supposed to be about women in their 30s when it came out. And I was like, I don't know anyone living like this. Like, you know, Miranda Hobbs is supposed to be the loser of this cohort. And (laughs) she's like a partner in a law firm who just bought a very expensive apartment. Everyone has like very expensive clothes. They're going to the Hamptons. Like, you know, the way I think our generation is aging is out of step with the depictions of that generation in a lot of media. And that's a disorienting experience, too.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so our first question, and this is the, you know, I I kind of previewed this, that this was the question that we received en masse when I first asked for questions. And it's about the specific way that this movie is portrayed or not portrayed in the trailer. So let's go. This is from Lily.
1: I saw the trailer for the new Mean Girls film when it went viral towards the end of 2023. And it gave absolutely no indication that this was a film of the musical version And I then saw the full trailer in the pre-roll for the Eras tour film, which was great targeting. And it was much, much more obvious that it's a film of the musical, not just a remake
0: of the original film. And I'd love to hear you discuss the musical theater-ness of it all. Okay, so I vaguely knew that there was a musical of Mean Girls. And I think I knew that because a lot of films have been adapted into musicals in order to, like... Uh, because it's more of a sure bet on Broadway than an original production. Did you know that?
1: I didn't know that until I looked up, <laughs> I read the Wikipedia page for this reboot, and in there it says, adapted from the musical. <laughs> and I guess the, the actress playing uh, Regina George, yeah. Renee Rapp, has originated the role on Broadway. Ah. So that was a revelation to me, but it does feel like it was obscured deliberately maybe in the ads for this movie and i found a very interesting article on deadline about how studios do this they apparently test audiences do not like musicals Mm. so they don't want anyone to know that they're going in to see a musical Mm -hmm. they want them to buy a ticket and maybe they enjoy the musical experience maybe they hate it but they've already bought their ticket uh it's the same with the wonka movie with Timothy Chalonet is also apparently a musical.
0: And they didn't make that clear in the ads either. And the color purple, the new color purple, is an adaptation of the musical. I will also say that what's interesting, this is straight from the Wikipedia page, is that the the musical version of this, it started to be developed in 2013. So it wasn't even like that long after the movie came out. I mean a little bit, but like not that long after and then it debuted in 2017 and now we have this movie in 2024 so we have this long like just dating like mean girls is just always pregnant <laughs> like it's just about to always have a baby <laughs> Um, And so I don't think like someone woke up like in 2023 and was like, "Oh, you know what? It's time for like you know everything else is rebooting. Let's reboot Mean Girls." Instead, it's just been like this gradual trickle, almost like Star Wars or something like that, which I think is is more common. So, okay, when you rewatch the trailer with this knowledge that it's a musical, I think you can kind of tell it's a musical. Did you notice any tells?
1: Yes, I mean, one is that there's. A character saying dance break, and then the characters break out into choreographed dances, which happens, I guess, at least two or three times in the trailer. And that really took me back to – do you remember, like, teen movies when we were younger always had some sequence where characters would do a choreographed dance? Yes. Like, 13 going on 30. 13
0: going on 30, Um. What's that movie with that. Melissa Joan Hart and Adrienne Grenier? I, I only know it because it oh, was like... Oh, Drive Me Crazy. Yes, because Drive Me Crazy Spirit was soundtrack. the single from that movie. I mean, this yeah. was like a very 90s, 2000s iteration of like a musical where they wanted to have a single that they could market mm-hmm. from the movie. And how do you get the m- song in the movie? It's like a dance break in some way, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that, I mean, that brings us back to the question of why not use one of the songs from the movie in the trailer? Why use Olivia Rodrigo? You know, blessed that we are to have her.
0: Maybe the songs in the movie are not that cool.
1: That could be it. <laughs> <laughs> like But in that case.
0: Well, and that's the difference, right? So you have like musical theater type songs versus pop songs. So like, the version of musicals that we grew up with that were popular when we were growing up in like the late 90s, early 2000s were movies with soundtracks integrated very forcefully. Like the soundtrack Mm -hmm. was a feature in and of itself, both to be marketed, but then also as a vessel to allow characters to dance or to express emotion in some way. And I think that what we've seen, whether it's through like this like, trying to milk everything that you can get out of the IP or just like the repopularization of like Disney movies as musicals, right? Like the, um, the live versions and all that sort of thing, or even just the popularity of um, Hamilton is that now they're actual musicals, but maybe the, like that form is less palatable than the top 40 version of a musical.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's a very good theory and my dumber theory is that by sort of trying to sneak the musical element past viewers what they're trying to capture is people who are like oh mean girls i remember that i'll right. go see that again with right. with my kids and and people who know it's a musical who are like they're trying to bring these two groups together mm-hmm. without one another's knowledge and maximize like the audience and the revenue for this sort of mutated frankenstein
0: piece of ip yeah I think that there's also like this nostalgia to some extent for those movies from the early 2000s. Like I've seen on TikTok a couple of people being like, do you remember the bonkers dance movies from this time? And specifically citing like the Julia Stiles. the last dance. The last dance. (laughs) Which is like not a good dancer. (laughs) Uh,
1: I just saw that SNL. There's an SNL skit performing the. Unforgettable dance that Julia Stiles does <laughs> in like the climactic scene of that movie, which is mostly just like shuffling her arms around. Right, because like, it's supposed to be modern dance, everything. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I think that that was like a revelation for every millennial who watched that movie, and then later looked back on and thought, wait a second, why didn't they cast somebody who could dance? Why didn't they even get her a body double?
0: Like poor Julia. Stiles. I will say there is a really good dance movie from the late '90s, early 2000s, and that's Center Stage which is cast entirely with dancers and very few of them can act. But
1: And Zoe Saldana. And who Zoe can Saldana. Both, I guess, act and dance plausibly. Yeah.
0: So I think that like what we're kinda of talking around here is that they wanted to like evoke all of these feelings around movies that we as an audience, as millennials, like things that would make us want to watch a movie, even like leave our houses to watch a movie, which is a tall order for many people in this demographic. But then they also want to attract this other audience. Like they're trying to, they're trying to attract every audience. It's trying to be more universal. But then I think they kind of like, what's that phrase? Split the baby. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> yeah. It, and, you know, it, it's interesting to like, look at this Mean Girls, like kind of marketing plan side by side with Barbie because yes. it feels very similar in some ways, right? They're trying to create this like viral sensation that's very unabashedly feminine, that's kind of like supposedly subversive or sardonic and that that captures a lot of nostalgia. That's, that's like, the formula they're going for. But it doesn't really work the way Barbie worked. No. Like, Barbie had a, this enormously successful marketing campaign. People were so excited about that movie in, like, a very uncynical way. Yeah. And Mean Girls feels sort of like it's in this uncanny valley where it's, like, you know, it's not close enough to the original. It's not the original. It, it's, like, jarring mm-hmm. to those who remember the original because it's, like, a little bit wrong in every respect.
0: Yeah.
1: And... And I think for people who aren't familiar with Mean Girls, like if you're 21 and Mean Girls came out when you were a baby, you know, does this scan for you? Does it like, does it feel like it's evoking an experience or a point of view that's like authentic to your adolescence? I don't know that it does. It's so it feels like it's, you know, it's kind of an awkward, like dark twin of the Barbie effort. And it both of them feel like they're their studios trying to figure out, like, how do we? how do we market to women? Like, what do women want to see? How do we get all those girls in the theater? And you can see in the parallels between the experience, how sort of condescending that strategy really is, like how they, how they're pandering. Yep. More so with, with Mean Girls than with Barbie. I think it kind of makes me feel offended as an audience member to be like, this is what you think I want. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, and even when when you think of me, when I think about the trailer for Barbie, at least the one, the first one that I saw was the like, hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Right. Um, Which is a weird trailer. Like, it does not follow the rules of a trailer. And I think sort of, like, how the reason that the Barbie movie was so successful is because they let Greta Gerwig just kind of, like, go be weird, right? Yeah. Like, both Mattel did and the studio did. like And and Margot Robbie did as a producer and the star. Like, they figured out, like, we can, we trust the audience to kind of roll with some of our weirdness here. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, to be clear, I'm not saying, like, Barbie is, like, avant-garde. I'm just saying it's, like, it's a little off-kilter in a way that I think is actually, works really well. But this movie doesn't do that.
1: Yeah. And part of that is, you know, Greta Gerwig brought with her the cachet of being Greta Gerwig. Yeah. And being a filmmaker and an actress who's, like, cultivated, you know, a career being a little bit weird and a little bit off-kilter. Um, and being a really interesting original filmmaker. And what Mean Girls is bringing us is Tina Fey. It's (laughs) Tina Fey again. And, like, does Tina Fey have that effect on audiences? You know, I think we're really seeing the limits of, of the Tina Fey marketability.
0: Do you think, though, that there is a hunger? You know, you were saying, like, it doesn't really speak to, I think, like, teens' experience of the world necessarily because it's so retrofitted on millennials' experience of the world. But I do think that there is a big hunger amongst that age group for various aspects of like Y2K culture, right? But is that just Mm -hmm. the fashion? You know, we just taped an episode about the resurgence of early 2000s music and how part of Mm. the reason that that music is coming back, there's many different reasons that you can explain certain songs, but part of it is like, those songs are easy to dance to, like they're fun to dance oh, to yeah. in a way that uh, not a lot of music from right now is as fun to dance to. And sometimes it's <laughs> Can you it's, dance to some-
1: Boy Genius? <laughs> that's a question.
0: <laughs> that was exactly, or like, can you dance to Boy Genius? Billie Eilish, like you can't, like there's just like a downbeat on a lot of stuff. Then Dua Lipa is like the, the rare exception there, which sound, to me, yeah. Dua Lipa sounds like it could come straight out of 2003.
1: Oh, I agree. yeah. Like, it is sort of just that cyclical trend energy, right? right? Where, like, it's always inevitable that people get nostalgic or or rediscover something that was popular in the past. And it becomes popular again because it was good 20 or 30 years ago. And whatever qualities made it good then are still appealing. Yeah. When I was in university, we listened to Fleetwood Mac. And that that was, like, very appealing to us because yeah. those albums are still great. But I think where it gets sloppy is, like, you see – sort of these big commercial ambitions for like throwing everything at the wall and and trying to make it sell. Yeah. And that's where you start to feel pandered to, I think. Like yeah. you can only revive things if they're worth <laughs> resurrecting out of the ground, and I don't know that everything is. I don't know that this particular franchise is.
0: Well, and I think you touched on something that's really crucial, which is that I think that younger audiences might discover Mean Girls and love Mean Girls as Mean Girls, Mm -hmm. but that does not make millions and millions of dollars for the studio.
1: Exactly. And you have to, you know, this is the, like, the marvelification of every sort of filmmaking endeavor now where it's it's less about filmmaker ambitions or audience desires and more about I think like these studio ambitions to have these big meaty endlessly replicable pieces of IP yeah. that you can churn out every couple years and and I think that you know something I didn't know until I was doing some reading in preparation for this episode was there was a Mean Girls sequel that came yes. out a couple of years after the original that yes. had Tina Fey in it and I think it was kind of a flop like it got bad reviews it went Direct a video in the parlance of the time. And, and so, you know, it's like this is always sort of the ambition of a film. If it does well, is like, how can we do more of this thing? Yeah. How can we, how can we multiply it? And that can be sequels, that can be sort of a fast and the furious style universe building, or it can be, I think, this like effort to sort of retool the original for a contemporary sensibility in a way that. Kind of reveals, like, the limitations of the original, right? Like, you can't just layer more diverse characters and, like, <laughs> contemporary jokes onto a scaffolding that's kind of fundamentally regressive right. from from a contemporary cultural perspective.
0: I'm trying to think now of anything that has done that successfully. I did not watch the Babysitter's Club reboot, but I think that people really appreciated it from my sense. Um like something that is reimagined it in a way that is not just like repeating the regression, yeah,
1: I watched the first season of the Babysitters Club reboot, and I found it very charming, and I think it actually channels some of the millennial nostalgia well. There's like really good stunt casting of Alicia Silverstone oh, as yeah. one of the moms uh, <laughs> that's great but but you know that's that's sort of the the same problem with the sex in the city reboot too is they've attempted to like retrofit diversity and inclusivity onto a show that was like fundamentally about very privileged white women and it's it's bizarre to see the results like you can't just sort of glue these things on top and and hope that audiences will accept it and like so bizarre
0: that that becomes the reason to watch it is to watch like how bizarre it is as they (laughs) attempt to retrofit it melody just came into the chat and mentioned the league of our own a league of our own that reboot which I think works. I, I don't think that the race element of that reboot works as well as they want it to work, right? They're like, oh, let's have a subplot where we have a black baseball star who is trying to, like, be part of this league in Campy. What works really well is the very explicit queerness, which was there in the, you know, it was yeah. implicit in the original movie. And they're like, oh, yeah, all these girls are probably gay, right? <laughs> and they're like okay
1: let's female baseball team probably has some queers that's true
0: (laughs) even in the 1940s can you imagine um and (laughs) so I think that that part actually worked well because they were making something that was implicit explicit
1: yeah well and often I mean something that I found jarring thinking about remakes is how often they're not more progressive or more feminist than the original Mm. like the one that drives me wild is Jurassic Park, which was an important movie in my childhood. Same. And Laura Dern is a great character in that movie. You yeah. know, she's like a scientist. She runs around in hiking boots. She has like a wild adventure in that movie. And great meanwhile, style. her male, Yes, great style. <laughs> great perpetual Halloween costume potential there. <laughs> and meanwhile, Sam Neill is forced into this role of caregiver. He's shepherding these two children around. He's like discovering whether he wants to be a father. He embodies this role that's usually played by women in movies. And then when they remade that, you know, 20 years later, we get Bryce Dallas Howard in a white skirt suit and high heels, <laughs> like learning how to embrace to her femininity. Yeah. And like Chris Pratt's like teaching her that maybe she wants to just be like a girlfriend and a mom. Maybe it was wrong of her to focus on her career. And that that feels like an example of, you know, sometimes we're going backwards
0: with these remakes. Yeah.
1: So like, what are we trying to do here?
0: So, I want to get, like segue here into an explicit line from the beginning of the trailer. We've talked about some of the stuff to do with this, but I think this is like we should address it head on. This is from Natalie.
1: Can we talk about the decision to include the line, "This isn't your mother's mean girls" in the trailer? I feel like half the audience for this movie will be women in their 30s who loved the original movie when they were in high school, myself included. Of course, there are people in their 30s who have teenage children now, but it honestly just feels like we're being called old and out of touch. So why risk
0: alienating half your audience before the movie even comes out? So I wanted to do this question because I think it allows us to talk about who is this movie even for and how studios oftentimes make these movies or create content just generally where you're like, who are they thinking of? What is this imagined audience? Who is this for? Why are they trying to market to everyone And thus, no one with this film. What do you think's going on here?
1: Again, I think I see little echoes of like the Barbie marketing strategy Mm. here where I think that marketing campaign, and to be clear, like I have lots of critiques of the movie itself, but I think the marketing campaign is like, inarguably, incredibly successful. And what they did was really played on the fact that people had a lot of criticisms of Barbie. You know, they were like, if you hate Barbie, you should come see this movie. It's not just for people who like Barbie. It's for people who think they hate Barbie. And to me, it feels like this is like trying to attain a similar like cheeky vibe of being like, oh, you think this is for your mom? It's actually for you. Uh, <laughs> but again, the problem there is like, who who are the moms and who are the presumably daughters in yeah. this, you know, in this audience persona? Because again, yeah, I I don't think many of the teenage viewers of Mean Girls have teenagers themselves now, though some do. And I'm sure they'll make great TikToks about seeing the film together. But to say this is not your mother's mean girl suggests there's something about it that's new and different and like more with it than <laughs> the old ones. They're
0: TikToks.
1: They're TikToks. <laughs> yeah, it's suggesting that this one is going to be like edgier and, you know, more contemporary with the TikToks. But it's confusing because the imagery in the trailer is like so dead on the original, like right. the, you know, the pink outfits, the like get and loser line. Yep. And so, It's, you know, it is trying to have it both ways. It's trying to, like, capture the nostalgia and maybe neg elder millennials into going to the theater and proving that they're still cool by embracing this new edgy Mean Girls. And maybe it's trying to appeal to teens. But if I were a teenager, I'd be confused either because I don't know what the original Mean Girls was about. (laughs) And I wouldn't know how this one is different from it.
0: Or maybe you just, like, don't watch trailers at all because watching a trailer is, like, a very... Elderly. I, don't know. I think habit. that that's like a practice. Yeah, that's that's something the that olds do.
1: I think teens watch them on TikTok where uh, they show up as ads between like yes. the skincare videos.
0: <laughs> it's true. I think too, you know, there are these parts of the trailer that are trying to be edgy. Like, so John Ham plays a health teacher, is my understanding, and there's a part where he's ta- like he's supposed to be teaching sex ed, mm-hmm. and it's like, we're going to talk about, you know, I don't know, normal stuff and then also like fisting. And I think that the the implication is like, oh, wow, like culture isn't what it used to be when that seems like a, a, a misunderstanding, too. Right. Like school yeah. hasn't actually like the way that people talk about sex in school hasn't actually changed. If anything, it's become more regressive in many places. Like you're not talking having a sex ed talk at all. So that also doesn't seem to like align with what is happening in high schools either.
1: I think it's also the dissonance of the original movie which, you know, had some jokes that felt like they were aimed at an audience of like middle-aged comedians like Tina Fey. <laughs> like like the joke about the gym teacher having two like teenage Vietnamese girlfriends yes. felt like a joke aimed at middle-aged men about how they fetishize young Asian women. But that's not yeah. a joke for teenagers. Like, that's not something a teenager finds funny.
0: No, no teenager it's is like, oh, it's so funny, right? They're like, no, this is weird, and we don't like it. I, yeah. You know, sometimes I think about who came up with the marketing copy for something like this. And this isn't your mother's mean girls seems like something that was not necessarily in the pitch, but that some executive was like, you know what we should market this as? Not your mother's mean girls, right?
1: Yeah. It feels like often the marketing copy for movies is by someone who has not seen the movie and maybe has not seen any movie.
0: (laughs) And maybe doesn't know any women or teens or moms.
1: Yeah. Which, again, (laughs) is like the problem of so many movies that feel aimed at women and especially aimed at this like ambiguous audience of millennial women where it's like, what are they what do these mysterious ladies want? Some of them don't have children. Some of them are interested in their careers. Like, who are they? How do we sell to them?
0: Oh, we don't know anything about them? Let's make something from 2004. Um, Yeah. I think next we should talk about something we've been circling a little bit. This is about Tina Fey, who wrote the Mm -hmm. screenplay for both versions of this movie. And she also wrote the book for the stage musical. Let's hear from TJ. Why is Tina Fey uncancelable? She has repeatedly included racist undertones in her jokes for 30 Rock, Kimmy Spit, etc., but none of them seem to hinder her success. What's her secret?
1: Mm, mm. (laughs) This is a question I have about a lot of white female comedians and actors in their resilient uncancelability. I mean, Amy Schumer's comments of late about... Israel Gaza is another example of a kind of public conduct that I think would not be tolerated by anyone who wasn't white. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is the kind of like white feminism plague of the early 2000s that maybe, you know, is the specific nostalgia that Mean Girls the reboot is dusting off, which is that this like insulation wrapped around white women, you know, that they've been oppressed on the basis of gender. So they have a license to be edgy (laughs) You know, that kind of, like, ranch feminism idea that, like, we're just doing what men have done for ages, and if you reprimand us for it, then that's just sexism. Right. And I think Tina Fey has, has really, like, ridden that wave for most of her career. And I am a little bit surprised it hasn't run out for her yet.
0: And unapologetically, too. I think that's actually part of the reason why she has remained uncancelable. She doesn't actually address people's critiques of her.
1: Yes, I think that's a big piece of it, too, is, you know, this idea of cancel culture, I always find is a little bit disconnected from the reality because many people just, you know, they ignore the criticisms and they keep working. And at a certain point, the narrative changes. It like evolves to be focused on what they're doing now or it picks a different target. And really by not responding, she's, she's managed to control that narrative or keep it focused where she wants it to be focused
0: in a way that i think actually resembles how most white men and some men of color but um have negotiated different criticisms of them so i'm thinking about like mel gibson who like should be so canceled like should never he should be so far down the hole of cancelability like that there's no way that he could climb out and yet here he is appearing in like mainstream movies like i don't know and i think so much of it has to do with Do you make money and do you have the protection of other people in power in Hollywood? And so Tina Fey's really strong connection to Lauren Michaels, who I know was a producer of this stage play, and I am guessing still has a producer credit on this, on the film production, like she's always going to be able to get this made. She has this connection and the protection of Lauren.
1: Yeah, it's true. Though it's also interesting to consider like what. Behaviors, especially in, you know, in female celebrities, are considered condemnable. Yes. And I feel like racist jokes are is not one of them. But, like, think of Winona Ryder's shoplifting scandal that daunted her for years. and like, Canceled. <laughs> yeah, she was canceled for doing a little shoplifting, which, you know, arguably a victimless crime against a large corporation. And, and certainly, I would say, like, a lesser harm than propagating racist
0: jokes in your right racist in your jokes filmmaking. and then like also just her like for me the, I think the difficult thing with Tina Fey or the reason why, why she's so resilient is a lot of the ideologies that she's promoting are a little bit more pernicious like it isn't as mm. obvious some of it's obvious like in Kimmy Schmidt and like in, in 30 Rock especially when you revisit 30 Rock but then some of it too what is the name of the movie she was in um, when she's a journalist in the Middle East. Oh, uh, Whiskey Tango Whiskey Fox Tango Foxtrot. Fox <laughs> totally forgettable. And it's all about her going to, like, be a journalist in Afghanistan in 2003. Like, of course this movie is going to be kind of fucked up, right? And... That's the sort of thing that, like, no one is there is no enduring conversation around this movie and all of the different ways that it was fucked up. I wrote about it at the time, and I would have to go back and like read the article to remember all of these ways. But I just remember that, like, this movie is not so offensive that it's causing an uproar, but that doesn't mean that it's still not offensive.
1: Yeah. Well, and something that is disorienting, you know, I think we've talked about like the disorientation of seeing artifacts of your youth dusted off for a new generation realizing the time that's elapsed but something yeah. that's unsettling from like this point in your life when you're looking back on cultural conversations is realizing that there's this narrative that like things used to be different you know that we're in this woke culture now where like certain kinds of jokes are not okay but it didn't used to be like that in the early 2000s which is the kind of thing I remember hearing in the early 2000s mm-hmm. about like racist jokes in the 90s right. And it's this eternally renewable argument that like you know back in the day we didn't know this was offensive or like people had a better sense of humor they could take a joke and I don't I don't actually think that was true like I think in 2004 people were capable of you know noticing and condemning when something was like homophobic or racist and so it's this sort of useful defense that's trotted out and it is a little bit unsettling sometimes to see you know people who are in their teens or early 20s now who are who are sort of believing that Things were different then. Mm-hmm. You know, the other example that I keep seeing people talk about lately is this nostalgia about cultural unity after 9-11. Right. And how, you know, how the whole country came together, which is such a revisionist narrative oh, that excludes the experience of um, you know, in particular Muslims and, and Arab Americans who were <laughs> not part of that unity and who were really targeted in that period and and in this current period. But you know, it's it's really weird to see, I guess, things that you remember happening and like conversations you remember having then sort of erased for the convenience of saying, you know, what I did then was, was fine. It was all good. It's right. not fair to retroactively critique me for something that was acceptable. It's a real uh, revisionist history.
0: <laughs> this is actually a great way to talk about our next question, which is all about like why reboots, why this nostalgia for especially, I think, this particular time period right now, but a lot of different time periods as well, like the 90s. So, okay, this is from Anna. There are so many throwbacks for millennials, and I don't think other generations had this trend. What is happening with us to drive this? I would just say that it's easy and understandable that we as millennials think that there are a lot of throwbacks for us. You know who had the most throwbacks in the whole world is boomers. (laughs) There is so much boomer throwback content that happened over the course of the 1980s and 90s, and we don't realize it. We didn't understand it because it wasn't our stuff, right? A lot of it, I think, was slightly rejiggered. So something like You've Got Mail, which is Mm -hmm. a a remake of content that maybe might have been part of uh, various boomers growing up understanding or like even nostalgia for things like, I don't know, like Happy Days In my mind, I thought Happy Days was like made in the 50s. It was not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I mean, prior to Me Girls, Lindsay Lauren's two biggest roles arguably were remakes, right? Freaky Friday was a remake, and The Parent Trap was a remake. And she's fabulous in both those movies. But those were also remakes of sort of like Gen X era films. And so I think like reboots are a timeless. timeless cultural phenomenon but maybe what makes them feel more frequent now is also just like the pace of remakes like what's happened in studio filmmaking feels like it's changed a lot where there's this like um sort of frantic pace of like recycling ip in order to like maximize its value so that's why we get like a new spider-man movie every two years and a new marvel movie like every time i turn around there's a new one and so it feels like it's happening more frequently maybe because it is happening more frequently, but the phenomenon itself is is not unique to millennials, I think. It's just that we're seeing it happen on this like really rapid uh, iteration.
0: Yeah, and it's risk minimalization as well, mm-hmm. right? I think a lot of studios, because of the way that Hollywood is organized now, only want to pour money into projects that they feel like have a guaranteed mm-hmm. audience in some capacity. And blockbusters are one of those things. And then the other thing that they're willing to, quote unquote, risk money on is stuff that is oriented towards women, but with existing IP. Exactly. So Barbie makes sense here and Mean Girls makes sense. But like, it's just to me, it just feels very condescending. It feels very like pedantic, like that. We wouldn't like people wouldn't embrace new stories in any way.
1: And. I think that's, you know, you see sort of a similar phenomenon in publishing, too, where Mm, there's a lot of emphasis on promoting like a few big titles every year. And then there is, you know, all these other books that get basically no promotion, but maybe once in a while, one of them reaches some kind of like mainstream success. Like Bottoms was a real breakout, I think, and a great movie for women um, or that reached a lot of women. But didn't get that kind of studio support. And and so, you know, you have these like few big films that get all the resources and then a bunch that are kind of left to fend for themselves that that might just endure because an audience discovers them. But what Hollywood has lost and I think what a lot of creative industries have lost is that middle layer, you know, yeah. like a movie like You Got Mail. The whole rom-com yeah. genre is kind of depleted now because there are these mid-budget, mid-tier movies that are not big enough to justify sinking that kind of money into a marketing budget, but they're not small enough to get made maybe by like an indie director. So yeah,
0: I think a lot of that, that energy has been moved into streaming for better and for worse. And it makes me sad because I love going to the movie theater, right? I love going to see a mid budget movie. Mm -hmm. That's not a blockbuster that's not necessarily a prestige picture because that's the other thing. It's like, I don't, not everything needs to be like something that has these like blockbuster performances where people wear a lot of makeup in order for me to like it. Like I want that middle tier and it feels like no one is listening to the millions of us who are so hungry for it.
1: Well, and I think again, that's, that's sort of what energy mean girls. And, you know, it's, it's kind of parallel Barbie we're trying to do is get people to go to the movies by promising them like a moment, like a really, yes. um, A really experience based, you know, movie going trip, because it's true that the movie theaters and the studios are competing against the, The comfort of streaming where you can be at home on your couch, you know, looking at your phone without anyone giving you a dirty look in the theater. Um, (laughs) You can be like a total slob with no respect for the conduct of society (laughs) at home. (laughs) But at theater, hopefully you're still muting your phone. And and so you have to be like promising people not just a great movie, but like an experience that makes it worth dressing up, going to the theater, going with your friends, like planning a date around it. And I mean, I think the other movie that did that well, In the past, I don't know if the third one was successful as much, but Magic Mike as a franchise Um, was a cinematic experience. Like, I've never been in a theater where so many people were hooting and hollering at the screen. I know.
0: Well, and that movie, too, I think took women's pleasure seriously and, like, took some risks in terms of, like, the jokes and even, like, the cinematography. And, like, the first one particularly is dark. and. I kind of like how it's like, oh, like there's all of this like sexiness, and then also this is dark as shit because like the life is dark. (laughs) These are movies about the first one. I think is about the 2008 recession in particular,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and and the newest one is also about like the current recession and like the economic challenges of being like in some ways an aging creative in a depleting industry. I think Uh, that they're great movies about the economy that we are also about
0: women's an, pleasure. We should do an episode It's just a retro... Like, we just watch all three and just go, like, deep. Anytime. Oh, my God. I think they're incredible cultural artifacts. And and they're an example of how you can make a movie
1: for women that's not just, like, what do women like? They like pink. They like jokes about how other women are mean to
0: them. Yeah. <laughs> well <this laughs> is jokes a, this about, like, slut-shaming. This brings us full circle because I don't know if Tina Fey actually likes other women. Like, I think she likes Amy Poehler, but I don't know if she likes other women. I think Channing Tatum... Loves women, likes women, is friends with women, dates smart women, is engaged to another smart woman. Like you know, like I think that there's just this, um, I like women that like escapes from him without him even trying. Whereas I'm Tatum collaborating with Roxanne Gay. You know, yes, I do not get that sense from Tina Fey ever, ever.
1: Yeah, and I think that's you know that's sort of the central tension in trying to update something like Mean Girls, which I don't know that this trailer suggests they've done well, which is that in in the early 2000s, it was still, you know, sort of part of the culture to be really catty about other women. And that's part Mm -hmm. of what Mean Girls was sort of trying to subvert by talking about how girls should be nicer to each other and not write mean things in this Burn book. But it was still sort of the, you know, the foundation of the story. Like 2004 was when we had Jessica Simpson... (laughs) On newlyweds. And the premise of that show was people making fun of how she was like hot and stupid because she thought that tuna was the chicken of the sea. Yes. And, you know, and Paris Hilton's like The Simple Life was on TV then. Like it was a time where the idea was like, look how many dumb women there are and you're smarter than them. So you can make fun of them. And I don't know that that scans very well in 2023. I think we've moved past that idea that like making fun of, you know, dividing women into these camps of like, Smart, hot, and dumb are a good way to to entertain and connect with each other.
0: Yeah. So we purposely wanted to focus on the trailer because we wanted to make this episode accessible to everyone, not just people who could get out of their houses and watch this movie in the theaters. Uh, But we would love to hear your thoughts once you have seen the movie. You can find us uh, and this discussion on the Substack page. Now, Michelle, if people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on the Internet?
1: They can find me at, unfortunately, I'm still on Twitter, uh, at Michelle Sisa. Uh, I'm on Instagram. And you can find my writing on the walrus as well as the narwhal, uh, where I edit stories about Indigenous-led conservation. And, you know, media being what it is in 2023, my byline is kind of all over the place.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you're a paid subscriber, stick around. Melody and I are going to do advice time, answering a question about an awkward workplace bathroom situation. This one is tops. I, like, I don't know if I've ever given better advice. So you really want to stick around and listen. Thanks for listening to the Culture Study Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have so many great episodes in the works, and I promise you do not want to miss any of them. If you want to suggest a topic, ask a question about the culture that surrounds you, or submit a question for our subscriber-only advice time segment, check the show notes for a link to our Substack. Some of the shows we have in the pipeline include All Things Goodreads, like Why Does It Suck So Much?, What's the Deal with Moms for Liberty?, Is it actually bad to sit all the time, the way that so many of us do? Like, what's the deal with sitting? Is it actually a bad thing? (laughs) And the cultural force that was Christian rock music. If you want to support the show and get bonus content, head to culturestudypod.substack.com. It's five bucks a month or50 dollars a year and you'll get ad free episodes, an exclusive advice time segment, weekly discussion threads for each episode and a link to a special Google form so that your questions go to the front of the line. By the way, if you already subscribe to the Culture Study newsletter, you get a discount. Just search your email for Culture Study podcast bonus code and it should come up. If it doesn't, just send us an email. The Culture Study Podcast is produced by me, Ann Helen Peterson, and Melody Rowell. Our music is by Poddington Bear. You can find me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, Melody on Instagram at Melodious47, and the show at Culture Study Pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.